0: Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Nine to Eternity, a science fiction anthology, edited by M. Christian. Nine to Eternity, a science fiction anthology, began when editor M. Christian invited the authors to submit a personal favorite story, one that also, sadly, didn't get the love they'd put into it. And so, Ernest Hogan, Emily Devonport. Cynthia Ward and Arthur Byron Cover have been joined by Ralph Greco, Jr., David Lee Summers, John Marie Stein, and Jody Scott, as well as M. Christian himself, to make a memorable listening experience. Full of not just endearing characters, vivid worlds, and thrilling adventures, this anthology is also a touching examination of what these celebrated authors consider their best work. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Nine to Eternity.
1: A Murder The so-called Reverend Jerry Farwell once claimed Bill Clinton was responsible for various murders, partially on the grounds that he knew the victims. Well, I'm nearly 70 years old, and at this stage of the game, who hasn't known a few murder victims along the way. I will say this, during my years as a speculative fiction shopkeeper, I've met folks from all walks, treads, and slimy trails of life, and between a few, they've committed all manner of crimes, including the most detested these days, child molestation. They had one thing in common, until you were aware that they were criminals, They were just like everybody else. I suppose you can say the same thing about murderers. There has been at least one incident in my life which might have ended up with me being one. I'm not exactly proud of it, but the point is, if I'm capable of killing someone and I'm a mouse, basically anyone can be. Be that as it may, I can't say I've known any murderers, just a few of their victims. Two of those victims were one of my employees and her husband by a man who was convicted of killing the husband nearly three decades later. The arm of justice may be glacial, back in the days when glacial meant slow, but it is relentless and has sticky fingers. The body of our employee has never been found, but I'm convinced she's no longer with us. Another was this doctor in my hometown who every year performed at the Lions Club minstrel show, during which the guys got their Al Jolson on by performing old-timey music and blackface. Every year they told the same jokes and sang the same songs, and every year one of my classmates would dress up in a bad golden age black canary outfit and dance the same routine. This doctor did the same act every year, too. He'd perform word for word, an old bit that deconstructed little Bo Peep before the word deconstruction was invented. Basically, it broke down the lines of the poem with pertinent questions. For instance, after noting the sheep was wagging his tail, the doctor asked incredulously, Pray tell, what else would he wag? Today, in these times of weenie-wagging politicians, I would set forth a different answer. But back then, I laughed along with everybody else, every time. The doctor also sang, "'Is you is or is you ain't my baby?' Which, I'm horrified to say, was my introduction to Louis Jordan from the film The Great Race, which was probably my introduction to the concept of feminism. Anyway, some years later, the doctor found a new baby who, in a fit of pique, shot him dead when i asked my mother why she said drolly oh she was from new york a fourth victim was a woman named stephanie bernstein who was an editor in new york i only met her once or twice as she worked in new york and i lived in la but she was popular with the professional speculative fiction crowd and during our brief encounters she impressed me as having an effervescent personality and being sharp as a tack. I must have liked her, though I rarely thought of her, for the next decade or so, until Harlan Elson called me one day to say she'd been living in Santa Monica and had been murdered. I was very upset. Around that time, my employee and her husband had been murdered, though everyone assumed she'd simply left town so it seems unlikely her loss had any direct bearing on a murder. I wrote a murder to work through how I should feel about poor Stephanie. The story was not meant to be entertaining or escapism, and the magazine that originally published it, Pulp House, lost a few subscriptions because of it. Harlan told me that once he realized it was about Stephanie, he stopped reading it. I don't blame him. It was written in the days before computers and my hard copy is in storage, so I'm perfectly happy not reading it now. I hope you're up to the challenge. Don't say you weren't warned. Arthur Bryan Cover A Murder As the knife slides through a rib cage for the first time, some small part of Stephanie's mind, still free from the shock, protests in silent agony. She feels cheated. She never had a chance. Her previous experiences with terror hadn't prepared her for this. Her previous personal encounters with death had been strictly confined to those gleaned from the current crop of horror fiction. As a fan of stories that read like roller coaster rides, cumulating with crashes into bloody imagery, she'd supposed that potential victims, in life as in fiction, always experienced a sense of foreshadowing and unease before they came to terrible moments such as this one. Yet she hadn't even had the slightest premonition this was going to happen. Those same stories also implied that the victim's fate somehow balanced the karmic scales. Their anything but peaceful demises are in some fashion deserved, vaguely justified by their deeds, character, or inherent naivety. But, Stephanie protests, she hasn't done anything to deserve a knife in the ribs. She has committed little bad or antisocial behavior in her life and has no more or less moral fiber than the next person. In fact, she believes she possesses many traits associated with noble character. Nor does she think she is so naive that evil things should befall her. She cannot even take a vague satisfaction that a premonition of her impending demise had been correct, because up until now, today had been just like any other day, filled with the mundane struggles and joys of living. Now she will either live or she will die. At this particular moment she is doing both. Time comes to a standstill, and she is disoriented. Is that bright white light before her or behind her? Is it real or is it a metaphorical vision representing the world beyond this one? Is the darkness beyond the light waiting to consume her or will it protect her? Should she move toward the light or flee from it? Will time, when it resumes, move forward or backwards or will it break apart and scatter like a deck of cards tossed high in the air? Stephanie comes home early from work that day awkwardly carrying four plastic bags of groceries in addition to her usual load of briefcase, pocketbook, and cassette-carrying case. The bags hold mostly frozen dinners of the low-sodium, low-cholesterol variety. Stephanie doesn't need to lose weight, but she's just turned 40, and even though she hasn't quit smoking, she feels the need to be more health-conscious. Also in the plastic bags are catfish and fresh vegetables for tonight's supper. The new man in her life, someone she likes very much, is coming over for dinner. For the occasion, Stephanie has rented the two movies in her briefcase, the romantic comedy Surrender, which she has already seen, but which she hopes will put her dinner companion in a receptive mood, and the oldie-but-goody Emmanuel which they'll watch once they're properly relaxed. It should provide them both with just the right amount of inspiration necessary to commence a meaningful relationship. Struggling with her packages, Stephanie closes the door behind her, using only her hip. She doesn't realize that she's left it slightly ajar. Then, intent on her preparations for tonight, she forgets to turn the latch behind her. Had she performed the simple action, she would have experienced the premonition of the potential victim and nothing more, and this story would have happened to somebody else. Similar configurations of choice and chance would have to come into play, and indeed, they too might have turned on something as simple as a door left slightly ajar. Bill Prisman had served his time. Today he is a free man who has paid his debt to society in so far as society has been able to ascertain it. Prisman gloats when he thinks about it. The prison officials knew that his incarceration had hardly rehabilitated him. His psychological profile had, if anything deteriorated in every respect. He had freely admitted to the shrinks to his fellow inmates, in fact to anyone who would listen that he frequently fantasized about sexual violence. Sometimes the fantasies were so strong that he came without touching himself. It's common knowledge within the law enforcement community that one day Prisman will return to prison. Police and sheriff's departments throughout the state have been advised of Prisman's release and his potential for violence. Unfortunately, there is nothing they can do to hasten his return to prison. Today, Prisman is hunting. He's been free for ten days, for ten days of waiting. Now he can wait no more. He is hunting. Whether he is hunting through choice or due to an overriding compulsion over which he has no control is immaterial. He does not care why he hunts. It only matters that he must. He walks the city streets, exploring the suburbs and apartment complexes, wandering past the schoolyards and the grounds of the local community college, searching for an opportunity to make the shadow of the actions and sensations that plague him into a substantive reality that he can grasp, taste, remember. Only reality can banish the phantoms. He buys drugs, cocaine, and marijuana purchased from street dealers to help him control things. They had not reduced the gnawing need, but they have made it more bearable to some extent. The liquor helps, too. It numbs his brain, but unfortunately makes it easier to visualize what the woman he passes on the street must look like when naked. Prisman's state of mind has progressed far beyond the thinking stage at this point. All he can do is feel a perpetual white rage augmented by the pervasive certainty that his internal strife is directly due to womankind. For if women did not exist, then there would be no one who could give rise to the crimson images that smother all his thoughts and keep him walking the street like a man dazed by a dream, driven by demons of the soul. He knows he is not the only man to nurture a resentment towards women. He has met many men in prison just like him, and he believes the men who have persecuted him, police, prison guards, lawyers, had all been duped by the women. Prismen will never understand why the female creature sees fit to honor such men with her company and pleasure, washing away the strife they must feel simply because they're men and surely must be bedeviled by images and desires similar to the ones that give Prisman no choice but to hunt. The female creature will not willingly bestow her blessings on Prisman. Bitter experience has already taught him that only a paid woman who does not care what man she is with will consent to be with him. But today, today the female creature will wash away his strife whether she wants to, or not. Prisman is hunting, and hunting is one thing that Prisman is very, very good at. It has been a long, frustrating day when Prisman notices the door left slightly ajar on the bottom level of the quaint quadruplex apartment building near the center of town. He stops cold in the courtyard. He perceives possibilities. He must be patient. He must come down at Tad from the last high and be certain he has a reasonable margin of safety while carrying out his plans. He also must ensure, to the best of his ability, that no one sees him enter the apartment. So he knows he cannot afford to get his hopes up or take unnecessary risks, lest he be summarily returned to prison before he has the opportunity to change the shadows into substantial memories. He tries not to hear the thunder of his heart, and to concentrate instead on the sounds in the quadruplex. Unfortunately, the noise of the traffic and the trees and the stone wall of medium height surrounding the quadruplex keep getting in the way. Prisman creeps closer to the apartment in question in order to hear what he might to determine how many people, if any, currently occupy the premises. Crouching beside the bushes below the open window, he hears a woman whistling in a meandering fashion. She seems to be whistling her version of a tune being played on a wimpy new-age music radio station. Already Prisman hates her, his rage growing. He catches a glimpse of Stephanie as she walks towards the bathroom while in the process of undressing for the shower. Prisman waits nervously until he hears the water running, then he heads for the door. Seconds later, he closes it gently behind him. Prisman waits. He knows he has several options open to him. For instance, he can quickly ransack the joint and take what he can get, but there is something cowardly and unfulfilling about taking that particular option. Or he could simply split. He has, after all, learned from many prison hands, all more experienced in the art of crime than he, that the best way for a burglar to run into trouble is to take risks, and the fact that there is a woman in the shower makes simply burglarizing this joint a serious risk. Of course, Prisman reflects grimly, his prick has already started tingling in anticipation of a pleasure it hasn't had for free, for many many years he's not interested in merely burglarizing the joint the woman by her very presence represents unlimited possibilities possibilities that are all his to choose from as he will he latches the door his teeth grind the effect he believes of that simpering flute player on the radio he doesn't understand that sort of music He's heard it a couple of times since leaving the big house, in malls and once in a record store, and each time it was like someone smothering him to death with a pillow. It was soft music for soft people. With each step he takes into the apartment, his hatred grows for this woman he has only glimpsed. The plush sofa, the easy chair, the wooden tables, the shelves with vases and pictures and knick-knacks and CDs the case with the television and the stereo equipment and the array of potted and hanging plants they all represent a lifestyle that is abhorrent to him people who live so softly who live like this obviously deserve whatever they get prisman resists switching off the radio the amplifier has all these lights and graphs that look complicated, and he can't take the risk of getting so distracted in figuring out how to switch it off that he inadvertently gives the bitch a chance to lock herself up in a room. Besides, the music feeds him. It makes him feel like his brain is separate from the rest of his body, that his body is acting on its own, and that's just the way he likes to feel. He finds the shower. It's just down the hall, beside the bedroom. He sees the steam coming out the open door. Prisman thinks it's funny that his intended victim has left the bathroom door open while she takes a shower. One of the few things about life in the real world that Prisman has missed while in prison was the luxury of being able to take a shower alone. Maybe when he's done with her, he'll do that very thing. Only, he'll close the door. He stops just outside the door. He imagines the sound of the running water changing its tone, as if she's opened the shower door for a moment, either because she's done or she has forgotten a feminine item such as shampoo or soap. But the water never stops. He peeks inside, catches a glimpse of her silhouette in the steam through the plexiglass and feels an onslaught of loathing and desire that reminds him of a rush that he felt while a little boy riding a great big rickety roller coaster. He turns away and presses his back against the wall to think things over, to plan his next move, and all he can think of is how much he's salivating, his throat itches, his prick itches. He holds his trembling right hand before his face, he can't bring the muscles under control. They move as if on their own volition. But that's all right. His body can do what it wants, he thinks. And as his body moves towards the shower stall, toward the back of his unsuspecting prey, he watches as if from a faraway place, watches and contemplates all the possibilities. This is a good body, Stephanie thinks, as she massages soft soap shower gel on her breasts her rounded belly and finally her inner thighs eyes closed she turns her back to the spray and spreads her buttocks in order to fuel the hot liquid surging between them she's had a lot of fun with this body she believes it has served her very well and she has no doubt that the fast approaching realities of middle age notwithstanding it is still very attractive to men and tonight will serve her in exactly the manner she has become accustomed to it occurs to her that since it won't take that long to fix dinner she's going to have a few hours to herself before her date arrives perhaps she will read a book late last night she started one about a dude who kills people with claw hammers but it isn't very good, and she strongly suspects the book will meet the fate of most cheap paperbacks, whose contents, through their very blandness of sheer awfulness, strongly offend her. She will stuff it down the garbage disposal. Perhaps she will merely set it aside in favor of one of those used paperbacks she purchased a few days ago at the neighborhood bookshop. Two of them, in particular, appear promising. One concerns a public defender who keeps drawing these clients who are clearly guilty as sin and he gets them off scot-free every time. After he successfully defends a drug dealer who happened to be videotaped while shooting several people during an attempted robbery, he finally suspects that something perhaps odd is going on in his life, something supernatural, something that has to do with the devil. The second paperback concerns the members of an obnoxious, hedonistic, heavy metal band. One by one, the members are slain in a brutal, but inherently satirical fashion that Stephanie hopes will provide her with a few laughs, if not shivers. But, Stephanie admits, as she lets the water run down her face and over her breasts, those books will be good for a few hours' amusement and little else. Life is too short, she thinks, for it to be wasted on reeds of little import. Perhaps her time would be better spent checking out a few of the collector's items she'd sprung big bucks for. Bucks sprung toward a book speculator she'd slept with a few times, a speculator who always had an inside track on the hot collector items in the horror field. The two books she is thinking of are anthologies, which at the moment lie on the stand next to her bed. One anthology is composed of stories grouped around the setting of the western United States, while the other is a group of vampire stories. Both volumes came to her highly recommended, and both contain stories by authors who'd sent shivers down her spine in the past. Stephanie has almost reached a decision, and is about to turn off the shower in any case, when suddenly she feels a cold draft and knows the stall has been opened for a reason she dare not contemplate. Before she can turn around and confirm her worst fears, the intruder grabs her by the hair and pulls her head back. He covers her mouth with a wide, powerful hand before she can scream. Were this a kinder, gentler story, with characters more articulate and genteel than those one tends to encounter in real life, then Stephanie and Prisman will get to know one another better before they commence their death dance. Prisman, seething with a murder lust he is too polite to reveal while engaged in social conversation, sits comfortably in the easy chair and coolly crosses his legs like a competent businessman, assured that he is about to close a deal that, in the long run, will enable him to take whatever assets he may require at will. Only the twitching of his hands and the perspiration beating on his forehead betray the extraordinary control he has over himself as he waits for the moment when the social amenities will finally be over with and he can at last take his pleasure with this woman. Meanwhile, Stephanie, clad only in a bath towel wrapped around her body and a hand towel wrapped around her head to hold her wet hair, sits primly on the sofa and pours Prisman a cup of tea naturally she isn't too thrilled about the part she must play in this kinder gentler story but in this version she is the kind of female creature who is compelled to observe social protocol regardless of how appropriate it might be at any given moment the author will flesh out this aspect of her personality by informing the reader that, as a college student, Stephanie once seduced a professor and continued to call him Mr. and Doctor, even when she was having her way with him. The author will delineate her character in such a way that the literary critic, sophisticated or not, can readily perceive her insistence on social protocol is simply her method of maintaining the illusion OF AN ORDERLY UNIVERSE, EVEN IN THE FACE OF TREMENDOUS CHAOS, EVEN IN THE HORRIBLE CHAOS OF HER IMPENDING DEMISE. HER POLITE, STEADY TONES WILL ONLY MILDLY BETRAY HER FEAR AND ANGER. I SUPPOSE THERE ISN'T MUCH POINT IN ASKING FOR MERCY, SHE SAYS THROUGH CLENCHED TEETH, AS SHE POURS THE INTRUDER A CUP OF TEA. THERE ISN'T, REPLIES PRISMAN matter of factly accepting the cup from her hand. He relaxes, he had half expected her to throw it in his face, and of course he is ready to commence the violence at any moment. But upon consideration he realizes that on this kinder, gentler stage she is much too polite, too much shackled by the perimeters of her character, to violate the protocol of psychodrama. "'Well, I must vehemently protest,' Stephanie says, holding her head high and her shoulders straight. The skin of her face and neck turned crimson, but whether from fear for the immediate future or from the embarrassment at the fact of her nakedness before a virtual stranger, cannot be determined at this moment. "'I realize lots of people get murdered every day, in fact, but I see no reason why I should end my life as just a sadistic.' Prisman shrugs taking a sip of the tea. It is really quite good, but he notices that she has not added sugar or lemon, that she has not even asked him. He is miffed at this social gaffe on her part, but he supposes, considering the nature of his visit, he cannot really blame her for getting back at him through whatever tiny means may be available to her. He decides that he can best get back at her by refraining from mentioning the matter. We're both statistics, lady. I'm a prison-bound hard case, and you're just someone I've happened on through chance. It had to happen to somebody. From my point of view, it might as well be you as anyone else. But not from my point of view, protests Stephanie meekly. Prisman makes no effort to hide his disgust. He likes his women filled with piss and vinegar before he shows them who's boss. That's what it means to be a victim. Your point of view doesn't matter. You're totally at my mercy. You know I'll fight back. I'll kill you if I have half a chance. Forget it. You won't have a ghost of a chance. I say, woman, looking at that cleavage, I'm glad you're my victim. I bet you got nice titties under that towel. I'm gonna have fun cutting them. Fun? Is that what this is about? Fun? Prisman smiles and sips his tea. His cock stiffens. How's your tea? Stephanie asked. Her eyes dart about. Clearly, she is searching for some avenue of escape, but they both know that the second she makes a move, Prisman will make his. My tea? He sets down the cup. It sucks, just like you're going to do once we get these formalities out of the way. Stephanie loses control and looks away, crying. I can't believe this. I had other plans for this evening. Until you waltzed in here, pretty as you please, I had a future. In fact, I was going to accomplish a lot with the rest of my life. Now I have nothing. It's only just struck me this moment. Struck me with full force. I mean, you're going to do it. You're actually going to kill me. Yes, I am. His voice is stern, but he feels almost sorry for her. He isn't used to thinking of his victims as human beings with their own needs and emotions. In Prisman's world, he is the only human being. He almost considers a course of action that, until this moment, was unthinkable. Almost. Maybe it would be another story if I was built differently inside, but since this is the way I am, I can only do what I must do. But it's not another story. Stephanie protests, wiping tears from her eyes. It's this story, and the only validation you have for your existence is to commit violence against women. Lady, I can commit violence against women, or I can do it against men. I prefer women. If it makes you feel any better, you might be interested in knowing that I have left a few behind alive on occasion. One thing is for certain, though, my conscience won't prevent me from killing you. Why not? Because a conscience is something I appear to have been missing since birth. I'm finally beginning to understand why conservative reactionaries are so insistent on supporting the death penalty. People like you don't deserve to live. Even life in prison is too good for you. Prisman throws back his head and laughs. He stops only when he becomes afraid he is too loud that someone next door might hear him. Lady... There is no such thing as a politically correct murder. Stephanie's shoulders slump. At that moment, she forgets entirely about her plans for her future and concentrates solely on surviving for the next few hours. Whatever time there may be after that will take care of itself. She watches as Prisman stands proudly. He practically preens, as if he half expects her to be suddenly overwhelmed by his animal magnetism. What she sees bulging in his pants fills her with such repulsion that she nearly vomits. Even so, she gets on her knees and clasps her hand together and looks up pitifully into his wild eyes. "'Please, sir, I I ask only one thing. If you're going to kill me, then go ahead and do it. Rape me later.' You can have your pleasure, but it won't matter to me then. Prisman grins. I thought I told you it wouldn't do any good to ask for mercy. He grabs her by the hair and pulls her towards him as, with his other hand, he unzips his fly. Besides, when it comes to rape, I'm what you might call a switch hitter. But this is not a kinder, gentler story, and as soon as Prisman has dragged Stephanie from the shower stall, she tries to kick him and elbow him because she once took a course in self-protection, and there the instructor informed her that, should she ever come under attack by a heinous individual intent on inflicting grievous bodily harm, she should inflict as much harm as possible on him first. She should bite, she should scratch, she should kick, she should gouge, she should punch, she should squeeze his balls like lemons. She should do everything she can think of and more. All this is exactly what Stephanie intends to do, but she is too scared to think straight and her blows are ineffectual. Prisman is too big and too strong for her and he already has the upper hand. He keeps the upper hand by slamming her forehead against the sink. From now on, blood constantly obscures Stephanie's vision. Mercifully, she does not quite regain full consciousness. Prisman laughs. Now she is totally in his power. For once, he is completely free to do as he pleases in a woman's company. Yet he is frightened, too. Something is caught in his throat. Something makes him feel inadequate and shy something about her feminine form still has power over him he feels an urge to get close to it to be tender her femininity draws him like a magnet he cannot resist it she groans she is in a daze is not quite helpless she must be completely helpless otherwise he will not feel secure enough to relieve himself of his compulsion so he cuffs her He holds her under an armpit and by the hair. She leans against the sink. She groans again. He cuffs her again. Her lips are torn. They bleed profusely, and a tooth falls from her limp mouth onto the floor. The sight of her blood excites him with an intensity that frightens him. He feels as if he has been captured in a flash flood and is being swept into an exotic land. He will either be filled with wonder or else he will be drowned. He pauses to examine her, to try to understand the feeling she arouses. He can barely restrain from entering her this instant, but something about the soft music emanating from the living room puts him momentarily out of the mood, and for the next few seconds he looks at their reflection in the mirror and does nothing. The mere act of hesitation feeds the shadows in his mind. The shadows threaten to smother him, and he knows he must do what he must to banish the shadows at all cost. He drags the female to the bedroom. He wonders about the books in the single case next to her makeup table, the feminine things on the table, the oils, the ointments, the powders and pads, the perfumes, the shampoos. He can understand their presence here even if he cannot quite understand what they are used for. But the books are strange, arcane things. He could never understand why someone would read a book, much less keep a case full of them around. Even so, glancing at the titles of the volumes on the nightstand, Prisman can't help but laugh. He throws the woman on the bed. He remembers his knife. He takes it from its sheath at his ankle and rolls her onto her belly and grabs her by the hair and yanks her head up and holds the knife to her throat. "'Here's all the razored saddles you'll ever need to spur you on, babe,' he says. The woman is just conscious enough to understand the implications of the knife and what she must let him do. Wide-eyed, she nods. He continues, I knew you'd understand. Blood is never enough, baby. I want more than just your blood, much more. And for the next half hour, Prisman gets it. Anything he wants the woman to do, she must do. Whenever she appears to be getting too bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, he cuffs her. He strikes her again and again, striving to keep her on the thin edge of consciousness, but never knocking her over into oblivion. He knows that it just won't be any fun if she has no idea whatsoever what is happening to her. And after his every ejaculation, he remains excited longer than he ever thought possible. And after a while, he figures out why. It's the blood. The bedspread is smeared with her blood. It is her blood that makes him feel alive. Finally, just as an experiment, With a destination he has already realized but cannot quite bring himself to visualize, he takes the knife and cuts a line across her shoulder. A powerful orgasm immediately overtakes him, distracting him long enough for the woman to sense that his grip on her hair is weakened. Either she realizes she has a chance, or else the pain of the cut he has inflicted upon her has at last stirred her survival instincts. For she screams at the top of her voice and fights to get away. Prisman is disappointed. Up to now he has pretended that as long as the female did what he wanted, she had a chance. Now her defiance sends him into a paroxysm of white rage. He lashes out at her and has another orgasm as the blade of the knife slices deep on the hip. The woman attempts to flee the room. She is too slow and weak. "'and it is a simple matter for him to catch up with her "'and throw her onto the floor. "'He picks her up and throws her down again against her bookcase. "'She still tries to move, to flee, "'but she does so slowly, very slowly. "'Prisman smiles. "'Now she is truly his. "'Stephanie screams. "'Her screams are loud and can be clearly heard "'throughout the courtyard, but they fade quickly.' and soon she can scream no more. Soon her blood smothers the bookcase, filled with special collector editions of the volumes that in her life had given her such chilling pleasures. Her autographed copy of The Books of Blood, her boxed limited edition of Scared Stiff, her grouping of The Dark Country, Red Dreams, and Blood Kiss, her prized copy of The Dark Forces, signed by half of the living authors, and her special limited edition of the revised version of The Stand, for which she paid her Book Scout friend over a thousand dollars, plus a few special favors besides. These volumes are just a few of the important tomes of the new modern vein of dark fantasy horror writing that are inundated with stuff that had once given Stephanie life stephanie is a character in one of the books a tale about vampires haunting the shopping malls in the san fernando valley and while she was alive she had taken it as a point of special pride that this character had met a grisly end it meant that the author liked her that fictional ending however was demonstrably less grisly than the one she has met with now, as her consciousness flees her body and floats near the ceiling, and looks down at the blood-soaked, soulless flesh that once housed her heart and her warmth. The consciousness is like a whisper of her mind, and so it does not know what to make of the other figure standing over the bloody flesh. To that whisper of Stephanie's mind, the figure is as cold and as dark as the other side of the moon. Then the tableau below is gone, and the whisper is smothered in a flash of white light. Among the blood-soaked books of Stephanie's horror collection is one containing a story about a particularly prolonged act of murder that took place in a courtyard in full view of the inhabitants of an apartment complex in New York City. And although the story is definitely fantasy the devil himself makes a guest appearance it is based on an actual incident. During that incident, not one of the good citizens who heard the victim's screams and pleas for mercy so much as lifted a telephone to call the police. The desire not to get involved, the need to remain anonymous dominated any predilection towards taking a risk or making a sacrifice for another. Simply put, the good citizens didn't want to get involved. Stephanie had a neighbor who didn't mind getting involved. Having arrived home between the period when Prisman entered Stephanie's apartment and when she began to scream, the neighbor had the common sense and courage to dial 911, summoning the police to the site. The police arrived just as the whisper that was once Stephanie's soul is obliterated by the flash of light. The police break through the front door and discover Prisman, his trousers pulled down around his ankles, standing over Stephanie's corpse. His lower torso and upper thighs are smeared with her blood. The police point their guns at Prisman and demand that he drop the knife. Prisman complies with a smile. He has gotten what he wanted, and now he can face his future proudly, with his head held high. For him, there will be no more shadows. But for Stephanie, shadows are all there will ever be. The End.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Nine to Eternity. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.